I hope you had a good lunch, a good conversation, and those of you that needed to uh, take a brief uh, recess that you enjoyed yourselves, welcome back. The next panel is on the West African security environment. We have three presenters, one of whom is not here, and that is Ido Ijeri. Uh, under normal circumstances, I will go according to how the papers are listed, but I want to spend time briefly uh, sharing with you some high points of her paper and read the conclusion that way I will sit down and bring uh, Usman to speak on uh, the issues uh, uh, that deals with the African stability architecture in new vision. And then we'll conclude this section with uh, George Keir on good governance, the African Union's peer review mechanism, and the new security architecture in West Africa. Idowi Jerez paper is on crisis in the Niger Delta impacts and reactions from the youth. The key reason we had invited her to be here was truly to have a voice from a young person on the ground that could help us articulate how the young people are feeling and reacting to the environmental instability, the crisis in the region, what some of us are calling the hopelessness of that area. A synopsis of her paper is that the Niger Delta is a victim, the Niger Delta child is a victim in his or her homeland. She grows up in an environment where poverty is so rife that she does not believe there is any other way to live. She is confused when her teacher tells her stories of places outside her community where people have access to electricity, clean water, and tight roads. A place where children wear shoes and sit on chairs in beautiful classrooms. She sees her village raised to the ground by fire caused by leaking pipelines. She witnesses the massacre of her parents, siblings, and relatives in the hands of military men. As she grows up, her confusion turns to resentment when she realizes that the resources that derives the funds used to provide electricity, third roads, and other amenities in those places outside her community is exploited from her homeland. She begins to ask questions about why her homeland is not developed. With time, she realizes that the government does not care for her people. It only cares for the oil it derives from her community and will not hesitate to use all the means of coercion at its disposal to crush any activity or body of persons that may jeopardize its interest. As the child grows into a youth, she realizes that the road to her future is narrow and her opportunities are limited. 
she chooses the easy way out by joining her peers in the creeks. She is the Niger Delta militant. That's a synopsis of her paper and like a good graduate student, she references the important sources that help her to examine the issue. But her task was more to ensure that she interviews the youth, reflect their thinking, and give us some insight on what the young people outside the world of academia and policy are thinking. Here are the concluding part of our paper, which is wrapped around the analytical framework of human development. The Niger Delta people have a basic fundamental right to self-determination, but there, too, there are too many contradictions, negative coalitions, and entrenched interests that are benefiting from present balances to allow for progressive change. Mind you, I'm not going to editorialize um, in the presentation. Though a constitutional review process is ongoing, once again, the legislators are carefully avoiding the contentious issues. Time was fast running out for the Nigerian state when it reversed course and accepted the amnesty option as a way out of the resistance and violence in the region. A major reason for the problems in the Niger Delta is that there is no political process. Leadership is fragmented and mostly unreliable and corrupt. The political parties have compromised the process and institutions of governance and local leaders, at least until very recently. They had no qualms in betraying their own peoples. The real issue in the region has always been the implementation of the various projects by the state governments, local government, and federal government agencies. The recent release of 200 billion naira by the Federal Executive Council to execute 44 projects ranging from the construction of roads to the provision of electricity, amongst other things, will show if the state government will betray their people yet again or if they will use this opportunity however little to finance the pressing needs of the people, especially those in the rural areas. The region needs capacity building in order to have an effective non-violent political movement that is focused on justice, equity, and clear conscience. Thus, the solution is true federalism, as against the corrupted version currently in place and democracy where the minorities are provided for. The Nigerian state, through the federal government and its institutions, must begin the radical processes of social, economic, and political restructuring and repositioning in the Niger Delta. It must put the present and future of the youth in its priority focus to ensure that the distractions and attractions of militancy are diluted, if not eliminated. The government and its agents must take responsibility for their actions in the region and make amends by listening to the grievances of the people, lay the issues on the dialogue table, 
and then constitute a transparent body to be overseen by development experts and not technocrats or politicians to ensure sustainable development in the Niger Delta region within a specified period of time. In spite of current processes of amnesty and organized dialogue, the government must recognize that it is not all over with militancy. Failure of the amnesty program could easily encourage the return of experienced and very angry militants to the Creeks. Human lives should be the index of development in the Niger Delta region, rather than by the quantum of money that is pumped into failed development projects. Considering the revenue accruing daily from the exploration and exploitation of resources from the region, education, health, and youth development are crucial to the transformation of the people from one agitating for right and justice through armed conflict to one that readily cooperates with the government for development and security. Emphasis should therefore be placed on the need for educational facilities with free education, including school uniforms, stationery, and examination fees. Emphasis should be placed on the number of youths gainfully employed by transnational corporations in host communities with clear and sustainable training, retraining, and skill acquisition programs made available in all local government areas. Emphasis should be placed on healthcare facilities to reduce mortality rate, especially infant mortality and maternal health care. Policies that promote women empowerment should be put in place as women and children bear the brunt of the crisis far more than the men or youth. Environmental issues should be prioritized in collaboration with communities, youth groups, and non-governmental organizations in order to protect host communities in the region. TNCs should be held accountable and responsible in cases of oil spillage, which usually can be avoided if oil facilities are serviced and regulated to avoid catastrophes like the Jesse fire. The state governors should be held accountable for the underdevelopment of the communities in his state and yearly quarterly reviews should be done by an independent federal government agency. This way, human life will be the measure of development, and the figures of budgetary allocations will not remain provocative, abstract terms to the people of the region. Infrastructural development is one thing that is clearly lacking in the region, and this has been at the core of the protest by youths, youth groups, and NGOs. Due to the terrain, as most communities are hidden in the creeks, the people need means of communication with the outside world. This includes road networks, bridges, speedboats, and canoes, as well as motorcycles. The general idea has been that it will cost a lot to construct roads and bridges in the region because of the terrain. But that should not be an issue because a fortune is derived from the region. What is lacking in the area of infrastructure is political will and the recent disruption of development works by the militants who are bent on grinding activities in the region to a halt attest to how seriously they take this factor into consideration. In this regard, the federal, state, and local government, as well as the traditional leaders and youth councils, need to work together 
This will ensure that the most pressing needs of the people are attended to and sustainable development is achieved in the long run. Oil companies are not aid agencies, yet they have social responsibility. Ultimately, it is, the, it is the duty of the federal government to develop the region and ensure that TNCs operating in the region comply with international environmental standards. The youth should not forget that the fight is on their land and they stand to lose more in the long run and destroy that which they are trying to protect if the crisis persists. If they have been compelled to take to militancy, they should embrace new options for dialogue and collaboration without abandoning their essential demands for justice, equity, good governance, federalism, and social justice. A technical committee appointed by the President made recommendations for action relating to the region almost a year ago, but so far, no action has been taken. The amnesty offers to the militants as a way to end the crisis and pursue holistic development through the NDDC, and the new Minister of the Niger Delta has opened new options for dialogue. MEND and other militant groups have eventually agreed to negotiation, surrender of weapons, and a post-amnesty program is being discussed and implemented. Of course, serious questions continue to abound. Will the federal government keep its promise? Will the process not be corrupted by bureaucrats and politicians? Has enough been done to win the sympathy and support of all stakeholders? Is Nigeria drawing lessons from best practices around the world to prevent a return to violence in the region? Will the processes of disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration adequately cater for the militants, especially the unskilled and those already addicted to extra-legal modes of survival? Will there be any scapegoating in the future? Will the ongoing constitution review process address issues of revenue allocation, resource control, community ownership, and the rights of the youth to education, employment, and basic human needs in justiciable provisions? The questions above would inform a study of the amnesty and post-amnesty politics in the Niger Delta in the very near future. Suffice to conclude that unless the post-colonial Nigerian state is democratized and custodians of the state power appreciate the importance of human security while reforming and repositioning public institutions, we may not have heard the last of the restive youth and militant groups in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria. In a fragile social-political environment, even a regional crisis could spread across the entire nation with very far-reaching implications for the sub-region and continent. She concludes. That's the uh, synopsis and concluding part of Idou Ijere's uh, uh, paper on crisis in the Niger Delta, impact and reactions from the youth. Uh, for those of you who may not have looked at our program, <clears throat> she's a graduate student uh, in, at the University of Sussex, where she's uh, part of the program on Globalization and Development Institute for Development Studies. Thank you very much. And I will invite the esteemed Zakaria Osman to the podium. Uh, thank you, Professor Karishi. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. 
I have the difficult task of having to entertain you about the architecture of stability in Africa, the new vision. Well, the architecture of stability has to do with the human and institutional logistic, whereas vision has to do with the projected dream. Before speaking about stability, the architecture of stability, we should speak about instability in Africa. All the parameters that I have described characterize the environment under which the African live, characterized by high incidence of poverty and autocratic regime, a conflict trend indicates that there is a positive trend and there is a decline in conflict. However, there is an incidence, there is a correlation between ethnic conflict and political conflict. Intergroup warfare, to the exception of Rwanda, Somalia, Burundi, and Djibouti, usually you have in Africa more than 10, 15, 30 different tribes in the country, which should be invited added. However, Experience has shown that neither those who have a limited number of, of tribes or those who have large tribes, none of them has graduated from conflict. There is a correlation between corruption and conflict. Corruption, theft of natural resources by the authority and gross incompetence have played a havoc in Africa. This is true. Africa and Africa, this is the only continent where overnight you can become a billionaire. Not even in the United States, which is one of the richest countries in the world. In Africa, you can become a billionaire overnight. I mean, overnight is too short, but there will be less than one year can become a billionaire. <laughs> absence of the rule of law. Now, in my own country, Chad, I know some people to whom the law does not apply. And Chad is not a unique case. You have in many African countries, besieged by civil war, you have this kind of situation where the law does not exist. If it exists, it's only for certain category of people. Well, first of all, we have to admit that if we were to construct the stability architecture, we have to address a number of prerequisites. First of all, what do we mean? What do we mean by stability? 
What do you mean by stability? Stability here in this particular case has to do with a situation whereby you have mediating factors in a country and those mediating factors reinforce each other in a way that there is a social peace, there is a security, and therefore there is a tendency to manage the country as a whole and to use the country, to use this stability as a springboard for sustainable development. Sustainable pace in development requires a social and political infrastructure that can be built across religious, social, and ethnic lines. The political and economic stability tend to be mutually reinforcing. The three key related questions that must be addressed is effective leadership. One of the biggest problems in Africa is the deficit in leadership. The African countries are run by people whose vision at best is, you know, does not exceed one or two years. The time under which they are in, in, in an office, they formulate their vision according to the time they spend in office. Whereas vision has to do with a long-term dream. And there is no vision if you don't have a mission. However, the problem that we have, which has been compounded by poor leadership, is the problem of poor governance and a, strong, a lack of a strong institution. What happens is that the country is usually run as a personal affair. The president or those who are in charge tend to use the country as a personal enterprise and under, under such circumstances, those people have nothing to account for. And the basic problem here of governance is that the country is simply not run. Uh, we take the case of Botswana, the case of uh, Rwanda, Cap Verde. Those countries live on almost nothing compared to Nigeria, compared to Angola. Botswana with meat and diamond and Mauritius with the textile and sugar industry have achieved better, have done better than the Nigerian or the Angolan and even the Libyan. The three, the three pillars of stability have to do with the political, architecture, the socio-economic, and the security. Now, usually what happens is that when the political architecture of the triangle collapses, it tends to bring down the socio-economic infrastructure and then destroy the whole security apparatus. The political problem. Now, in terms of solution, is the continent is an urgent need of strong leadership with clear vision. Now, the problem is that how do you get this leadership with a clear vision? When in a situation where you don't elect the leader, 
Okay? Now, moreover, the problem of leadership is further compounded by the very fact that external forces to Africa tend to maintain, to maintain certain type of leadership in order to ensure their access to a number of goods and services, i.e. oil, gas, and what have you. We have seen the case of Guinea with this camera. The very same week, the very same week when the population went to the stadium, some of them were killed, molested, raped. That's very same thing that this camera has signed a loan agreement with China of about seven billion US dollars. At the same time, you take it a little bit further to see what is happening in Sudan with the government of Omar Hashan al-Bashir, very closely linked to China, and the government of Sudan, regardless of what has happened in terms of massacre and human rights violations in, in Darfur, has succeeded to get away and to continue business as usual. So the problem of leadership in Africa is not left to the African. But we have a tendency to believe in Africa that uh, democratization is about only election. Some of the, the government in Africa would have even the result before even the election. The only difference is that you would not know what is a 95% or 70%. Well, uh, I would say Zenafdin Ben Ali of Tunisia, who has been in power for the last 20 years, has succeeded to score as high as 80%, 82%. This is the type of African leadership and the African concept of democracy. Now, certain leaders tend to, con to go against the, the tide, against the web, the transmission of from father to, to son. We have seen in Togo, in Gabon, and it's likely to happen in Egypt, in Libya, and Senegal. And I know of a president who is even preparing his wife to take over. The socio-economic power is that we have very serious problem in Africa is that one of the youth exploration. More than 50% of the African are young. They're in charge of education, job, uh, living condition, bad living condition. It has been demonstrated that when the economy grows by 5%, it will decrease the likelihood of conflict by 40%. And when, 
you have an education, 5% education will decrease the likelihood of conflict by about 60%. A fully democratized country is likely to overcome any political turmoil than the one which does not abide by the uh, democratic principle. Now, we tend to, to say that poverty is a form of injustice. It creates a feeling of frustration. And then <coughs> it will lead to violence. So when we are in a situation whereby <coughs> the majority of the people do not get access to education, do not get access to food, do not get to the basic human right. What kind of stability do we expect to achieve under the prevalence process? To make matters worse, the fast increasing population in Africa of about 3% lead us to believe that the population will increase every 24 years from now. Whereas now, the continent is unable to feed its people. The African countries <coughs> cover up to 67% of food need. The 30% deficit is unaccounted for by importation or food aid. Africa is the only country where from the oil producing country to the poor Burkina Faso, people tend every other year to receive food aid, to live almost in food handout. Well, once there is a civil conflict in a country, one of the end result is that it will destroy totally the institution, that it will destroy also the economy. And then the economy will move from the formal to the informal sector, which will be difficult for the government to compare. The government will not be able to collect taxes. And if the government does not collect taxes, the government may not be able to invest. Now, we say that the collapse of the one of two pillars of the architecture has its novel effect in the system it affects negatively the foundation of stability. African leader, uh, policymakers need to have a broad knowledge of different parameters and stakeholders. Peace. Reducing the, the prevalence and risk of conflict and war and justice most a critical asset for a country. So it's better to have a peace and stability in a country rather than to have a huge resource natural resource endowment, because the tendency is that all the countries which have huge resource, natural resource, are those who are right now experiencing a lot of problems, take the DRC, one of the richest countries in the world, is in a terrible mess. So countries tend to increase greed and greed 
is a way open for all kind of competition of kind of uh, maneuver. Well, we said here that environmental degradation and natural resource management issues that cause protected civil war in most of the African societies are related to pressure on land use and population increase, access to mineral resources, and growing scarcity of water for human and livestock. We know for sure that for the next 15 years, North Africa will be confronted with a very serious water stress. In the Sahel, some of the people have already begun to move. When the population moves from one area to another, it's likely to be met by some kind of hostilities in the host, com in the host communities. And that's when there's no war <coughs> of conflict will start. But let's face it, with the desert creeping, the climate change, too much rain or too little rain, people have to live for a space of survival. That will lead them head on collision to an area where indigenous people, the indigenous people, are not ready to welcome them. Well, their way forward, well, the new state of Africa and Africa has placed and presented opportunity for peace without raising to violence. The continent has been bypassed by the Green Revolution, but will not be, will not miss the democracy. What I'm saying is that uh, there is no way today that Africa cannot live by the democratic principle. There is no way. It's a matter of survival. Therefore, we need to pick up the broken pieces of the puzzle and then put them back to redesign a new architecture based on capacity building, based on social infrastructure, based on very strong and solid institution. Now, we said that Africa future is bright, yes, <coughs> provided that Africans who have been the main cause of their plight have to realize that is it up to them to redress the situation? It's up to them to correct the situation. It's up to them to pick up the pieces and then to get back African territory. A new vision of Africa is based on the theory that peace and security are integrated concepts. They form the building block of a, for a sustainable atmosphere of stability in any nation. Peace is the result of an investment as much as stability will be a result of a combined environmental situation whereby then you have economic progress, you have democratic principle, you have good government, <coughs> and once you have integrated all those elements, you will turn to the social peace and security. 
The African leadership could and should be able to overcome all the underlying socio-economic and political causes of instability. They need the political will. Do they have the political will? War in Africa proves to be a very lucrative business. Once the war has started, it will be extremely difficult to stop it because there will be an opportunity for the leadership to continue to embezzle the resources. It will be for the military to get what it usually doesn't get. It will be for so many people working under the ground to use this thing. So the worst that can happen to any country in Africa is that you have a civil war. You will be blown out of proportion and you will not have an end. We said that the new state of affairs is that the ballot box will replace the bullet. But what type of ballot box? Is that the one that we have mentioned earlier? That the president can never lose the election. No African president has ever lost an American president election except Kerupu, who did it. Okay. Other than that, most of them succeed always to get reelected. Now, the average tenure of power in Africa is about 15 years. It used to be 20 years, but once uh, Bongo has gone, we now go back to But we still have we have to have Gaddafi, who is well over 40 years then, and most of them are well above 40 years. Thanks to the new generation, that you have new people who have come in, like President Yaradwa of Nigeria, who is a newcomer. You have Yaiboni of Benin, who is a newcomer. You have Tumani uh, Ture. And also, most of the African leaders right now have a military background. What happens usually is that those people will station who they will come, and then they will imitate to be a civilian, to be a very good democrat. And then, so when you take, you face it, you take in Tunisia, is a formal, former military man, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Central African Republic, Chad, Rwanda, what you can make the list long up to Mali so far. To the exception of Senegal in West Africa, all of them, all those countries have been at one time managed by military or continue to be managed by military. Those are not the people to whom we should go and then ask them to pick up the pieces of the broken person and then to put their back. Second, Really, should we speak about a new vision without indignation of the, the present status quo? In order to speak about the new vision, you have to be extremely you know, unsatisfied with the status quo. It looks like right now neither the community, the people, nor the leadership do not seem to be concerned too much about this. It's a fact of matter that uh, the, 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 the resource of the country continue to be embezzled. It's a matter of fact that people 
will go on up, open sky, do business. And I came to a country whereby somebody, the policeman, realized that in the morning, when he came back from his evening shift, he realized that he did not have a breakfast while the children do not have a breakfast. And then he put up back his uniform and he went back to the street. And then one hour after that, he came back with the needed money and all that. This is the situation that we have now. So what kind of vision would we have if we continue to have the human stock, the human burden of those people who have been long corrupted, totally morally destroyed? Is that the reverse of Africa is nothing else than people right now in Africa who are enduring the suffering are the ones who have to stand up. But here, will you say this is going to be a threat? Well, Africans have to fix the mess. Nobody will be able to come. I heard you discussing this morning whether the U.S. has been interested in the United States and in Africa or not. I mean, there is no such thing as emotional interest. It's a business as usual. If you want Africa, demonstrate to people that you are very serious. You are very serious. You can't manage your country. There will be no need for you to run after somebody else. Africa is extremely very rich to attract what is needed. Now, this is a country where you have only five functional countries, five functional states. The remaining are between semi-functional state, shadow state, and fair state. You have 53 African countries. If you take the five or six countries, you will be left with 48 or 47 African countries, where there is not a sense of belonging. Those are people who are You want the African to move in, to fill, the, to fill in the gap? And then I'm afraid that there will be not only the U.S., but there will be the, the Chinese who are nearby. There will be the, the European who are nearby. They will all end up coming to Africa to fill in the gap because there is no functional state to guarantee security. So our situation is extremely complicated. The very good predicament of Africa is that we hope, hope will replace despair, prosperity, and dignity, replace poverty and education. Health instead of disease, education over literacy, and above all, peace and security and stability over common awareness, criminal activities, and conflict. What do we need? We need the human infrastructure. We need to pick up the leadership. Give us the chance to elect our leaders. Give us the chance to censor them. Give us the chance to put them in prison, in jail. Give us the chance to deny their authority. And that can only be done with a very, very vibrant, strong civil society. Thank you. To our colleagues and Senator, happy to be here. Uh, one of the major criticisms that has been levied uh, against the United States' counterterrorism strategy uh, 
uh, is that it fails uh, to situate the phenomena of terrorism uh, within the social, economic, and political context. Uh, what are the specific states uh, broadly in the global context? Uh, consequently, the strategy, the criticism goes, relies heavily on the use of military means. In the case of West Africa, the importance of the military approach is reflected in a number of bilateral and multilateral security arrangements between the United States on the one hand and various African states on the other. I'm not going to go into the details of, of those things. A, a number of the papers uh, will specifically deal with that question. So the suggestion has been made uh, that the U.S. needs to rethink its counterterrorism strategy. And central to that process is the importance of developing a sort of a multidimensional approach that, among other things, take cognizance of the domestic political economies of states uh, and the overarching international political economy, as well as U.S. foreign policy itself. I mean, so three key components here, the domestic political economies of states, individual states, the overarching global political economy, and U.S. foreign policy itself. So, using West Africa then as a case study, what I'm, I hope I can do in this paper, is to look at how useful the combination of good governance, the AU's peer review mechanism, and the new security architecture in West Africa, can serve as elements of this redesigned American counterterrorism strategy, particularly in the uh, West African sub-region. In other words, at the regional and re at the sub-regional and regional democratization and development architectures that I embody in the three areas that I mentioned earlier, useful instruments for addressing the economic, political, and social pathologies within the domestic economies of West African states as well as the broader global political economy that provide an enabling environment for the result to the use of terror against the United States. So that's the sort of a question I try to grapple with. So the way I approach this is that I begin first by looking at good governance in the context of West Africa by sort of looking at the, the architecture, both first uh, po uh, policy pronouncements and then secondly practice. So I look at the uh, following document, I'm not going to go into the details of that. The first one is ECOWAS's Protocol on Democracy and Good Governance. ECOWAS, as you know, is the Economic Community of West African States. It has a Protocol on Democracy and Good Governance. And the centerpiece of that protocol uh, is what the organization refers to as trying to promote constitutional convergence principles across the sub-region uh, that focus on issues such as separation of powers, the holding of regular free, free, fair, and transparent elections, 
and zero tolerance for power of team and or maintained by unconstitutional means. The next uh, policy document is the African, in a much broader regional context, is the African Charter on Democracy, Elections, and Governance. And the thrust of this document is the promotion of, of political democratization through, among other things, adherence to the principles of democracy, the respect for human rights, and the promotion of best, best practices in the management of elections for purposes of political stability and good governance. Then there is the declaration on, again, a regional document, a declaration of democracy, political, economic, and corporate governance, which basically uh, is a repeat of the previous document that I mentioned, so I'm not going to re-mention that. Then, of course, key to all of these documents, then, is the African Union's peer review mechanism, which is rooted in the new partnership for Africa's development, NEPAD, which is supposed to be the continental blueprint for development, the Declaration of Democracy, Political, Economic, and Corporate Governance. So, operationally, the peer review mechanism, which is a treaty-like document, is voluntary, and has at its pillow both self-assessment by member states that voluntarily join it, as well as regional assessments. The focus include issues such as democracy and political governance, economic governance and management, corporate governance, and social economic development. In terms of the new security architecture in West Africa, the policy cornerstone is ECOWAS's Conflict Prevention Framework, which is referred to as the ECPF, and the purpose of that is to promote conflict prevention and peace building, basically to uh, address conflicts before they uh, degenerate into violence and where conflict has occurred to take the necessary steps to, uh, to address their causes. Uh, operationally, that architecture has 14 components. I'm not going to name all of them, but they range from an early warning system to the question of uh, peace education. Now, keep in mind, as I said before, these are policy documents. So, so what I'm trying to do in the paper of friends is to sort of lay the policy framework and then look at practice. What are the challenges really lie in a number of places? And one of those major places then is when you just oppose those documents that I just summarized with actual practices in the sub-region and a number of the papers I referred to that including uh, the, the, the last presentation, uh, there are a number of issues. But before I get to those issues, uh, so these are being that be accused as an Afro-pessimist. Let me suggest that these documents represent a fresh good step forward. So uh, uh, one in that they recognize that in fact there is a crisis of governance in the sub-region. Two, they've articulated some of the ways for addressing those crises. Uh, three. Uh, there are efforts to address the political dimension of the challenges to democratization uh, in the sub-region. 
The peer review mechanism in particular recognizes the importance of assessment and enforcement of the elements or the tenets of political democratization. The new security architecture in West Africa at least recognizes the imperative of addressing conflict before they degenerate into violence and takes cognizance of the importance of understanding and consequently addressing the tab roots of those conflicts. So uh, that I would write as progress made. But there's a major challenge. The first one is that the approach to good governance tends to be managerial and technical. And what do I mean by that? Uh, even authoritarian regimes can have good governance in the technical and managerial sense. Uh, so good governance has to transcend the questions of management and the technical and managerial emphasis of management that privileges stability to a kind of governance that emphasizes transformation. Governance has to be a process that seeks to address some of the underlying inequities in power relationships in the various sectors and at various levels of the sub-region. I mean, that's the kind of governance that we have to create, the kind of environment in which uh, it, will be, it will be difficult for those then who want to use terrorism as a tactic to both be able to rationalize it and to be able to mobilize. I'm not saying it's going to end it, but it's going to make, it's, it's going to at least minimize the pretext that basically uh, could be used for that purpose. The related problem is that there's the issue of then implementation. The development of policy documents is not a new phenomenon in West Africa or in the region as a whole. I mean, Africa has been known for coming up with some excellent policy documents. The question is implementation, but more importantly, consistent implementation. Um, i give you one example. Uh, Mauritania has been suspended from the African Union and therefore from the APRM uh, because of the coup. But one would have hoped that a similar approach would have been used in Togo, what in the constitutional means were used then basically to bring a regime to power and then the elections were used to legitimize that process. So there, can, there needs to be some, some consistency there. Uh, if that would be established as a norm, a useful norm uh, across the continent. Well, in terms of this new security architecture that ECOWAS has put forward, in my view, one of the major challenges there is that the focus is still on regime security. It is still about creating a stable environment in which existing regimes will function. Now, although there is reference made to ordinary Africans, but in all of these documents it's always in passing. Uh, the, 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 the centerpiece is the security of these regimes. And of course, the problem with that is that if you have regime security, but mass insecurity, you don't really have the situation because it is the latter rather than the former that is important if you want to take the kinds of steps that are necessary uh, to make it difficult 
for groups and others to be able to mobilize in the use of terror. Now, in terms of the peer review mechanism itself, of course, sovereignty still remains an obstacle because it is voluntary. Uh, and the question of regional assessment itself still remains an obstacle. Uh, so those are issues that clearly will need to be tackled. Now, those are some of the specific challenges. I want to now look at some of the overarching challenges in terms of connecting these three areas of good governance, the African peer review mechanism, uh, and the new uh, security architecture. One of the overarching weaknesses is that all of these policy approaches do not take into consideration the broader global context. I know there's been some discussion about it. I don't want to belabor the point, but that context is important uh, because, as we all know, that context basically decides what is possible and what is not in a, in, in a context of West Africa or anywhere else. Uh, so. Any approach to the use of development and democracy as, as, as useful tools for counterterrorism, we have to take into consideration the, the global environment. Because that global environment is not sympathetic to Africa. It's not sympathetic to Africa in general, it's been said in many ways. It's not sympathetic to West Africa in the specific uh, case of this conference. Uh, and that is reflected in a number of areas. Uh, the trading system is still based on uh, inequalities. Uh, we still have the problems of odious debts, uh, debt. We have issues of multinational corporations uh, engaging in all kinds of practices that have adverse impact on the lives of ordinary Africans. I was born and raised on the Firestone Plantation Company, uh, and I saw firsthand uh, the predatory activities of a multinational corporation. And Firestone is still basically still doing the same thing. I mean, now is, is the, the issue of environmental pollution and all of those questions have come to the fore. But those are the kinds of issues that need to be taken into consideration uh, because these are some of the ways in which the, the global environment can serve as constraints on the capacities of even the most well-meaning African governments. I mean, you can have the most well-intentioned African regime, but it certainly is going to be constrained by a hostile global environment. And, and you know, the historical context of that has already been given. Then, of course, the second major overarching challenge, in my view, domestically, is that all of these policy documents and approaches take the post-colonial state and its political economy as givens. No effort is made to change them. Now, why is that important, you might be wondering? Because the post-colonial state was created not to serve the interests of the people of Africa, but to serve external interests. So unless you can democratically reconstitute that state in terms of its nature, its mission, and its character, I don't care, you can come up with the best policy proposals. It's not really going to make any difference. Because you have not changed the context in which these policies are basically going to be implemented. And all of these policy documents uh, certainly that do not take that into consideration. So what do I suggest then? One, in terms of the global political economy, there is very no easy answer. But my two cents worth is that the countries in West Africa and the countries in Africa would better be served if they use a strategy that has been referred to in the um, 
scholarly literature as full sovereignty. What that, what that means is that in an international environment in which West African and African countries as a whole are politically and economically weak and marginalized, it is not possible for them individually to deal with a hostile global environment. Therefore, the best way to do that is to pool their resources, whether region, uh, sub-regionally in West Africa, regionally in Africa, or in combination with other regions around the third world as a way of creating the space that will be necessary. Because you need some space, as you know, to be able to do even the well-intentioned things domestically, even the regimes wanted to do that. So I, I suggest that as one issue. The second issue then is that the issues of unequal trade, the odious debt, the, some of the adverse consequences of multinational corporations, these issues need to be addressed. Because as I said in my introductory comment, they impact the domestic environment. Therefore, they help create the kinds of crises of other development that those who want to resort to the use of terror can use basically as a pretext. So that's, that's, that's important. In the domestic environment, I made the point about the importance of rethinking the post-colonial state. Uh, and not just as an, as an academic exercise, but as a practical one, because the state, as we all know, is, it is the arena of struggle. It's where everything else happens. And, and it therefore sets the parameters in terms of what is possible and what, it, and what is not. And that restructuring, I would suggest, has to go beyond simply political liberalization. I mean, you know, holding elections, free and fair elections, great. Uh, respect for civil and political rights and liberties, quite great. But elections have no meaning to someone who is hungry or who cannot go to the hospital or who can get education. Those are completely complete meaning. So the approach to restructuring the state has to be a comprehensive one that looks at the economic, political, cultural, social, and all of the dimensions, including even the problems of ethnic privilege, which, which Clement talked about this morning. So it has to be a comprehensive project. So it can simply be whole elections, bringing a new regime, and democracy is built. No, I mean, it would have to be a much, much broader uh, process. Because the state is critical, as you know, because as, as Brother Usman said earlier, it is used by what, uh, depending on which faction of the, of the local African ruling class is controlling the state at a particular time, that is the source of wealth. So the state then becomes analogous to an exclusive buffet service, Chinese style. But the problem with that buffet service is that you, either, you, you need to be connected to, the, to the, the faction of the ruling class that is in charge to be able to eat in that buffet. Otherwise, you're going to be outside, your stomach will be grinding, and you're going to be walking through the bags. <laughs> so, so, so the state itself needs to be transformed, basically. So that rather than being used as an instrument of class privilege, it can basically be used to create an inner environment in which all citizens, irrespective of their class, ethnic, and other kinds of identities, can basically benefit. If that can be done, then I'm not saying it, 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 uh, it, it, it will end terrorism, as, as, uh, as General Howard correctly said. I mean, terrorism is a tactic. People can use it for a variety of reasons. But at least it's going to make it difficult for people to justify it and to use it as a pretext because ordinary people then become stakeholders. 
They said, no, no, I can't join this. I'm, I'm too vested in what is going on, so I can destroy this. So, you know, the state needs to help sort of drive that process. Now, finally, let me comment then on two other important elements before I talk about U.S. foreign policy in terms of this rethinking exercise. One is the question of empowerment. I mean, what this current fair wave of democratization in Africa has done is, yeah, you know, we've had elections, we've liberalized the political space, but empowerment has not taken place. Meaning that ordinary citizens at various levels in various sectors of African societies have not become major participants in designing and implementing the policies that affect their lives. And that is very, very critical. And it goes back to this issue of making them basically uh, stakeholders. Uh, and particularly in a continent, as Usman eloquently described, in which poverty is rampant, elections then become meaningless because they're not about ideas and platforms. They're about who can provide a meal of the day, basically. So uh, even for citizens to perform their political responsibilities, they have to have jobs, they gotta be educated, they gotta be healthy, they gotta be welfare, you know, they gotta exercise those rights uh, even much more effectively. The, set, the third element is the need for investment in human development, which a number of the speakers have made reference to already. Job creation, the reduction of mass poverty, healthcare, education, these issues clearly have to be addressed. Otherwise, political liberalization, as I said before, has no meaning. I mean, you can have all the elections that you want. You can have an election every night. If people are hungry, they have no job, they suffer from mass poverty, they clearly have no, no meaning to them. Now, I'm not suggesting that election is not important, but as Suman said correctly, it is not enough. Elections, are not, elections do not equal democratization. They are only important first step in that direction. Now, finally, what is the role of American foreign policy uh, in this mix as the sort of a third pillar? In the discussion about terrorism and U.S. counterterrorism strategy, uh, the issue of the role of U.S. foreign policy is often neglected, and I think for good reasons, because those who might suggest that there is a need to rethink U.S. foreign policy and to critically look at it, whether it's in, the term, in terms of Africa in general or West Africa in particular, you know, often get the criticism that, oh, well, you are contributing to the blame America syndrome. You know, so they, they, they demonize, they are castigated. So there's this unwillingness, and very surprisingly, uh, in a democratic society to engage in a process of critical stock taking. Uh, now, I said that to suggest that U.S. foreign policy, as a number of speakers have mentioned, in the context of West Africa, needs some serious rethinking. Because there is a perennial problem of inconsistency between democratic and development rhetoric and practice. Now, in policy rhetoric, it sounds great. The U.S. committed to the rule of law, promoting our democracy, and all of that thing, but it's usually not borne out by practice. A couple of examples. Uh, you've given some of the historical examples, but in recent times. Now, it's easier to condemn. Mugabe in Zimbabwe for presiding over fraudulent elections. I mean, that's easy. I mean, it's not an ally of the U.S., so that's easy. But the test of character, as you know, is not how well you criticize your adversaries. It's how well you criticize your friends when they do wrong. 
when Kenya provided a, 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 a number of a voting opportunities in Kenya, the U.S. government was, the, was one of the first to, to initiate a jump at accepting the results of the election. I mean, the, the embassy spokesperson called on the opposition to accept the results of the election, only to find out later on that the counting process was fraudulent. But the United States never really came out to hold the Kibaki regime, which was the incumbent regime, responsible for that. The general statement was that all Kenyan politicians were responsible. And so that was the general statement. Egypt, despite all of the business about liberalization, I mean, you could see the process of electoral authoritarianism taking form. I mean, Mubarak had basically set the stage. Uh, the results were no different. Muzumini in Uganda, his third term there. Uh, and the way he treated the uh, Kisigaya, the, the main opposition uh, leader. I mean, the list goes on and on. The reason I'm making reference to these is because by this inconsistency between U.S. policy, rhetoric, and practice, the U.S. undermines its moral authority. This is difficult then for, for, for folks to take U.S. policy pronouncements seriously. Because the argument that you know is you, you, is you can criticize Mugabe, but how about your friends who are doing the same thing? And by supporting regimes of those nature, you give those who want to use violence more ammunition. They can basically use that as a pretext. That's a big form of serious about democracy in Kenya, Iraq. Look at folks that they are supporting. So that that's one consideration. The second consideration is that it it, it then helps to create the kind of norms, traditions, and practices that help foster democracy and development, and therefore make it very difficult, not impossible, but make it difficult then for groups that want to resolve to the use of violence uh, to be able to find uh, the kind of pretext to do so. So in essence, U.S. foreign policy will basically try to need to liberate itself from what I call this realist trap which has been the common tool of U.S. foreign policy since World War II. Yeah, on the one hand, there's the talk about democracy and development and all of that, but once those values clash with U.S. national security and economic interests, then it becomes it's sort of a different song. In essence, you cannot promote democracy and freedom at home and do something else abroad. Thank you very much. Uh, just to refresh our memories, um, Ido's paper touched on the need for policymakers to reflect on the conditions on the ground in the United Delta. It's a more focused analysis of the impact of uh, existing ungoverned spaces on the youth. And just to bring you a little bit back to uh, Usman's paper, he talked about what I would refer to as a pyramid of uh, uh, security architecture. He calls it the pillars. At the top is the political, and to the left side of it is the social, economic, and to the right side is security. And he argues to the extent that the political context collapses into impact on the social, economic, and the security. And judges' paper that just finished 
goes back to the same theme, looking at governance, looking at social economic conditions, the external impact that these have on questions of security across board. We open for questions. Yes, General. Um, on your last statement about U.S. foreign policy, if I understand my friend Dr. I correctly, there are only six states in Africa that can be considered states. And probably of those six, maybe four that really have democratic functions, or you know, that we would sort of follow the model that you're. So, don't you think that makes it a little bit more difficult for the United States? Can the United States actively criticize 47 different states for their political atmosphere simultaneously? Is that a policy? Don't you think it needs to be a little bit more nuanced than that? And that by perhaps dealing with the Kenyans of the world or that you can help to make some change from the inside? Because if the policy you're advocating, if I hear you correctly, is that we, the United States, should be critical of 47 African states simultaneously, other than, say, Ghana, Botswana, five or six. And to me, George, that's, that's not much of a foreign policy. If, if we're going to be the, I know we can be the advocates for all the things that we've actively talked about today. But, you know, it is not a policy to actively uh, well, I don't, I'd be a very difficult foreign policy. Yeah, we actively criticize 46 different states for their political architecture, their fail of governance. I mean, well, I, 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 I won't say I won't count six. I mean, I think in terms of progress, it's not that more than six. But to to your point about how useful it might be as a foreign <laughs> policy strategy to criticize them. Is that the, the larger issue I was sort of getting at is not just simply criticizing states in Africa or elsewhere for their political infrastructure, uh, is, the, the, is the inconsistency in the criticism. The point being that it's easier to criticize Mugabe in, 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 uh, in uh, Zimbabwe. But how different is Mugabe from Mubarak? How different is Mugabe from Museveni? How different is Mugabe from Kigami? I mean that, that's that's for me. Is the, I mean that's the that that is the question. So w w what I'm suggesting is that in instances in which in instances in which it is clear that fraudulent elections are held, I think U.S. foreign policy help the process will help the process of democratization if its response is consistent. That's my point. It is the is the consistency rather than just simply the number that I'm focusing on that because. Mubarak then is simply even even the even 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 the uh, election observers, including those from the U.S. that observed the Egyptian elections, said that the whole process was fraudulent. That the that the election itself was just a combination of a fraudulent process. The statement from the U.S. government was that Egypt was making progress towards democratization. So, so that's my point. My point is the, is the larger issue of inconsistency rather than just simply the number. Now I don't. I mean, I won't say that there are only six functional states in Africa, uh, because uh, I think a functional state is simply, simply more than one that performs 
the usual law and order and these kind of fun, uh, these other kinds of issues. I would say that they're both. I mean, you can add Mali to the list, you can add Benin to the list. So a number of other countries, I think that you can basically add. Yeah, they are different categories of African states in terms of the progress they are making. But again, as I said, I think my broader, my broader concern is that there is not a consistent policy in terms of these. But let's take even Kenya as an example. The initial statement accepting the results came from the U.S. Embassy State Press, I mean, Embassy Spokesperson, who called on the opposition parties to accept the results. Is that true? You know, it's just not true. Let's, let's be very clear. I was going to ask you if you can answer questions on behalf of people. 
I will try as much as possible. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm interested in knowing what uh, in the whole things of uh, the amnesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, I'm interested in knowing that because I don't think that uh, the Nigerian government sufficiently distinguished among the militants sufficiently enough as to make a blanket amnesty workable. The way I see it, I see three classes of militants. Uh, First, the genuine militants who are concerned about the distribution of revenues in Nigeria, the environmental degradation caused by more production and transportation. Then the second category I refer to as the criminal elements who have capitalized on the crisis in the Niger Delta as a way of engaging in oil bunkering and as a way of kidnapping people. And not for political reasons, but surely for respect <coughs> ransom and other forms of pecuniary benefit. Then the third set of militants who were the foot soldiers of politicians who were armed by politicians and used as political talks. I don't see how the amnesty will benefit the second category of militants, the criminal elements, whose godparents are some top Nigerian government officials themselves, who engage in wholesale pilfering of the Nigerian oil. I also don't see how the amnesty will benefit the third category the political dogs. And I don't think that the first category of militants are going to be satisfied with amnesty because they are fighting for a cause that has not been addressed by the amnesty. So it seems to me we are engaging in in national deceit, (laughs) thinking that by simply telling these young men, lay down your arms and we'll provide you jobs and skills that the problem will be resolved. I know the oil market was quite happy when the militants surrendered some of the weapons, but I don't really see that as the solution to the festering problem in Nigeria. Uh, my shortest response to you will be you and I will not agree, and the reason I know we will not agree is because uh, I granted an interview to uh, Chicago Public Radio, uh, and I specified those factors, the categories you have specified, and I'm glad you mentioning those because uh, I think the interview was 24 hours after the uh, amnesties. We can even go further to say uh, the amnesty itself is in violation of the Nigerian Constitution because you have not charged these individuals with specific crimes against the Constitution. So on what basis do you grant them amnesty, so to speak? So I am responding to you as me, not as uh, Ido, because she did not deal with the specific categories of issues that you are referencing uh, in her paper. The mention of amnesties is largely to say in her paper that indeed this is a temporary measure. If there are no permanent solutions in terms of institution building, infrastructural building, education, employment, and social justice for the youth, they are bound to come back. The amnesty is not going to work. That's the least I can uh, glean from her paper. But the issues you have mentioned, uh, I think 
are quite uh, uh, significant, uh, and I completely agree with you. Uh, I have, uh, I, I see your hands there, uh, and I'll come to you. But uh, Clement Adibe has his hands up. Thanks, thanks a lot, Mr. Chair. Just very cynically, I go with Peter and say, listen, forget the amnesty thing, it was simply an opportunity to distribute to be your powers amongst the political elites, and you've gotten that. Um, but, but my question really is for one you also. I was fascinated by a paper, uh, by one of you, great man. Um, as I listened to you, I, first off, this is just academic stuff. Is there, is there really a causal link between poverty and insecurity in Africa? Causal in the way an economics or statistician do we know that poverty has caused instability or that poverty is the result of this? I'm just asking the person to go, both with especially with the care of the my substantive question really is I was fascinated by, by the suggestion that you ended up giving that what Africa needs is strong leadership and good governance. In the face of it, it sounds very nuanced. Problem is, that's exactly what the conservatives think they're doing strong leadership. You think strong leadership? Well, that's why I'm here. That's the argument that Mubarak makes. Obasanjo was trying to make with the third term. You know, I'm the only one who can discipline all these guys. They're talks. So, so it becomes, in many ways, a recipe for the dictatorship that we're trying to run away from. So, so, so to put it a little bit broadly, is it possible to discuss any of these issues outside of the cultural context in which African policies you mentioned strong leadership, it's Nyayo, the king, follow the game. Um, it is, uh, I'm the big man, I'm the only one who can guarantee you. So is, is there a way you can nuance that without sounding put on good western <laughs> by saying, by strong leadership, I really need transparency, a fixed time. I don't know if I'm making sense at all. This is potentially as a license for big money. I think we should speak rather about effective leadership with clear vision, uh, the leadership should know where uh, it goes what are the main objectives that it's looking for, what are the means that are required to reach this objective. So effective leadership is not necessarily strong leadership. So, what I am saying is that there is, there is always a social contract between the leader and the people. When the state is in a position to discharge fully its role, provider of peace, security, livelihood, then there is an adequation between the vision and the mission. Because the whole thing boils down to the social contract between those who are elected and those who have elected. Now, going back to strong leadership, which is not necessarily the effective leadership, something I will take it uh, as follows. Uh, let's face it, look at Paul uh, Kagame. I was 
about the effect of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. In Japan, I was born in the seven, 1994. And then I went back recently to Rwanda. And I saw a totally different country. Perhaps we should rethink whether or not what we are looking for is strong leadership as much as strong institutions that can constrain individuals across board, whether they are president or lawyer foot soldiers. Before I come to you, Lieutenant Spangler, I have a question and a comment from each of them. Yes, the um, beautiful conversation. First one is the whole issue of 
where are our council of elders within our societies? Those who become the wise as risers and not necessarily the holders of the titles. And um, I bring that to a personal level. There were a few of us selected as part of the Reconstruction Commission, of course. I think there may be only two of us who stepped aside and didn't want to hold elected positions and become members of political parties. And the chairman of our government reform commission becomes president. Now, if we will step back, we're not partisan, don't hold any membership in parties, but we still maintain a channel into this is what and what may not be, like I'm doing here. How many of us will encourage our people, leaders in Africa, to do exactly that, going to something else? That's my component. Where is that, that behind the scenes, advisory kind of um, getting or assessing type role among those of us who are across the world. Where? We become the chair of the advisory commissions and we become president for prime ministers and old ministerial positions. The next component is that of our cultural institutions throughout Africa. <coughs> and I, I, I'm biased here because um, in certain circles I guess is not very close to the policy setting. And that from childhood. I'm focused. The point about it is these institutions are being marginalized and pushed aside in terms of that whole issue of constitutional convergence. All the added discussions within the ECOWAS didn't bring into the cultural component among our people. These things mean something, and whether we like it or not, they're still there. They cross the boundaries, they destroy the whole issue of a Liberia and Sierra Leone. One country, Liberia and Guinea, one country, Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire, one country. And I speak to that personally, I know it's all across Africa. The third component is that one of the gender issue. I'm sorry, I mean, no, the due deference to Professor Frazier, um, not that she's a woman. But let's face it, Africa is more than 55% effective income earning. Um, Balancing uh, uh, actors are women. We have done nothing in terms of do women have the casting ballot in Africa's peace and security. Uh, I'm glad Mrs. Serling, Melvin Serling is president, but among certain those of us connected with the party, we looked at Ruth Perry prior to Mr. Taylor as the cleanup. Agent. And we're looking at Mrs. Surly as the cleanup agent to hand it back to a, another type of group of people. And we hope that. But again, that to me is one of the biggest issues. We're saying nothing about the majority of Africa's population. Women. Thank you very much. I definitely will take uh, these suggestions into account, which is uh, where are the elders? Uh, Africa's indigenous elders were the ones that could bring about conflict resolution. The cultural institutions, especially those dealing with public opprobrium, where are they? And where are the women uh, when we are making decisions? I do know for a fact that uh, African women used to be at the table before certain external interference. So those are very important suggestions, and we'll take them into account. And by the way, uh, I'm really pleased that we do have women in this room. So. 
please go out and bring some more so <laughs> they can be the influence on our thinking. You can expand on this. The caveat what the young gentleman says women certainly are the fabric of civil society and the, the thread that holds it together so often is pulled too tight. Um, with that, my comment that I wanted to make was actually about the uh, the Mint. So it was a while back, um, taking us back. You know, I have my own thoughts uh, about that whole issue. Um, truly, the, the whole reason that a, um, it's not an insurgency, what we would call it, sir, the proper word, agreements, the idea is not to refer the well, several terms. One is the economic terrorism, which is incorrect. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, economic insurgency. It's a... Grievances raised to violence. And, and, uh, but what I was thinking, I was talking to a police officer, and we're talking, this is framed in, in uh, the uh, security sector reform, having the right tools to do the job at the right time, uh, to meet the right needs. And um, so this was done in, in Abuja, and we were speaking about this very issue. And I said, you know, we're talking about the electronic capability. If, he said, you know, if someone uh, murders someone in Holland, and here they have a traffic infraction, there's no way that we can check and find that connectivity. And this led to another conversation about the, the Mint. And my thought was that uh, for every man or woman that had a weapon that turned it in through some sort of a DDR-type process, that the government should have utilized biometrics to, when that weapon's handed over, a quick photograph and a thumbprint in some non-obtrusive way. Because one thing that I found about the Nigerians and most West Africans, they're very clever people and you better keep them occupied. And so this is the, this is the base of power that the world is missing out on. And those people, the, 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 the men militants, now are no longer locked geographically into the operational area where their job was every day, are released by the government to leave the area. And when they leave the area, where will they go? And what skills will they use? And in 10 years down the road, who will be operating on the skills they develop? Very quickly, I mean, uh, we can debate whether or not it's going to be effective. One of the things that the government decided to do with regard to those uh, uh, who surrender their weapons uh, is to send them through rehabilitation. Now, whether the re rehabilitation facility has been adequately planned, uh, whether we were able to catalog the individuals as you suggested so that we know precisely who has turned in their weapons, who has gone through this re rehabilitation, uh, is entirely a different matter, but the point uh, again, it's quite well taken. Uh, more questions, comments? Yes, Claire. I have a question for Professor Kia. Mm -hmm. You had suggested one way to reach good governance was to have full sovereignty. And I wonder whether you could elaborate on that because I, you know, we've had mentions of two countries together. There is the African Union, and if there's full sovereignty, what if someone attempted to be sovereign with the aid of the United States, or, for example, now China. We haven't talked about China, but my understanding is China's building roads, doing a lot of infrastructure work, and I'm wondering how that affects governance in Africa, and whether it's part of full governance. Well, what I was suggesting was that in terms of dealing with the uh, 
broader international system in which these African states are politically and economically weak and marginalized, that pool sovereignty might be a much more effective strategy uh, uh, rather than uh, the sort of uh, individual approach uh, based on... Uh, so essentially what I'm suggesting is that... And Clement, Clement uh, made this point in his presentation this morning. I mean, that can be done through the existing regional arrangements. Now, it has been said that those regional arrangements will move in that direction, but they haven't. Uh, in terms of identifying uh, particular issue areas around which the regional arrangement can serve as a voice for the collectivity rather than individual countries using their individual sovereignties as argument. And, you know, the European Union is a form of full sovereignty. Uh, other regions of the world are basically talking about that. I think it's a more effective strategy in dealing with the larger global environment than doing it on an individual basis. That's what I would suggest. Um, Okay. Unless, it's, unless he has a poor sovereignty. Uh, you, you had your hands up first, so I go with you that. Yes, on poor sovereignty, I also think it's an extremely interesting concept and um, a very credible one. I, 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 my sense of it is that um, if you could build it in two ways. One is one challenge is aggregating interest, right? And uh, I think when you start looking at it across different regions, you're going to get in trouble. For instance, India doesn't necessarily share the same interests as Africa on some trade issues in the WTO. But if you, you know, if you're doing it sub-regionally or regionally, I think that it has tremendous value. Um, secondly, I think if you try to do it with the institutions, um, you know, as you said, Africa has a lot of nice policies um, and plans for uh, infrastructure, you know, architecture. Um, infrastructure, you know, on the security side and other sides, governance side. If we if we could start building that, you know, and where I would <coughs> criticize U.S. policy is to, to hold U.S. policy accountable for providing resources to those institutions <coughs> without distorting them, you know, and to that vision. For instance, the uh, peer review mechanism, we rhetorically support it, reluctantly, but eventually rhetorically, but never uh, uh, practically. You know, um, but it's a vision that comes out of Africa. It has its limitations as well, I think. But nevertheless, it's the start of an institution. And so, I I, I think that your whole uh, discussion about rethinking a state, you know, rethinking sort of how do you make African pulled sovereign more effective globally um, is extremely valuable, and um, it's something that I certainly am also quite interested. So you will join us in South Africa, <laughs> late January, where we are going to be dealing with territorial origins of African civil conflicts. Well, well, that sounds good, but just on that point, um, South Africa may not be so much interested in pooling sovereignty. They are coming on board, though. <laughs> just, they are truly coming on board. Well, I hope so, but uh, I'm just saying, like, you know, they should be insisting that Nigeria be in the G20 they should be insisting on it, yeah. you know, but they're not insisting on it. They're quite happy to occupy that seat on behalf of the entire continent. And so, uh, but your, your point is I'd love to go to South Africa in January always. Okay. Carol, did I address your question? Claire. Claire, was that a question you were asking or did I answer something else? Oh, 
I've had several answers, which I appreciate. Oh, okay. But I, I'm, also I'm also interested in the issue of China, how that's affecting governments in West Africa. Well, the, the, the Chinese, at least to their credit, make no pretense about being in Africa to promote democracy. So at least that, that, that you can give them credit for. They're in Africa basically to extract minerals, to make business, to do business, and why not? And you know, I think the way to basically deal with the Chinese is the way I would suggest that African states deal with every external actor. I think first, the major stakeholders within individual African countries, within the sub-regional and regional arrangements, need to be clear on what Africa's interests are, if we can call it that, what West Africa's interests are, if we can call it that, what Nigeria's and Liberia's interests are. I think an understanding of those interests then I think will provide some basis for negotiating with whether it's China, the European Union, the US, or any external player. So I, I mean, uh, but China is clearly not, China, China by its activities, uh, I think will undermine the move towards democratization more than it's going to help it. But I, at least as I said before, it doesn't pretend that that's why it's there. It's there basically to extract resources. Well, I was interested because, you know, when you hear about the U.S. Sorry, sometimes helping to destabilize certain countries, I wonder also whether China has gotten involved in that also. Well, it's protecting some regimes. I mean, certainly uh, close to the regime in Sudan. Uh, so it's close to a number of the regimes that, that are engaged in all kinds of practices, basically. I mean, I think any regime that basically can give them oil and minerals and markets to sell their product, they basically will give you guns and defend you, basically. Yeah, Guinea, um, and Guinea, seven billion dollar agreement with the Guinean military regime that just shut down its own people in September. So, don't get me started on China. I just came back uh, three days ago from giving a lecture on China in Africa. So, Usman. No, I just want to stress the fact that uh, this, the regime of the U.S. do not work with China because uh, the state are not at the same stage of uh, in terms of wealth.
the first president of the community, which he wants to become. That's why he's resisting the attempt to kick him out. Uh, and if you have this resistance from the others, because they don't want him there, then I'm sure there will be barriers created to ensure that uh, uh, it doesn't happen by 2013. Thank you. I had to ask Julius so that I don't say Usman, Usman. We have another Usman. So your question and comment, then I'll come to you, General Thank you very much. Uh, and once again, uh, thank you all, uh, the presenters. Uh, a very insightful uh, discussion. I have a very quick question. Do you think um, this idea of uh, pool governance, which is nations sharing power and institutions uh, sharing power, could also benefit from the idea of what I might call a benevolent um, patron. And the reason why I'm suggesting uh, the idea of a benevolent patron, a patron who can speak on behalf of these pooled nations. The reason why I'm saying this, I'm looking back at when, uh, when ECOWAS was founded in 1972. Uh, immediately ECOWAS was founded, what did France do? France called Côte d'Ivoire and said, look, see, Nigeria is going to overrun you. It didn't matter that Togo actually joined Nigeria immediately. ECOWAS was founded by both Nigeria and Togo. It did not matter that Togo was a Francophone country. France set the stage to sabotage ECOWAS even though it was supposed to be regional, and the Francophone countries have larger majority. ECOWAS did not have a patron to speak on its behalf, and that weakened ECOWAS until ECOMOG was founded, and the whole world said, ah, we need this. That was the only time both the United States and Great Britain came I mean, or considered ECOWAS as an important regional institution. Now, the point I'm making here is that this pooled governance probably would not work unless we have someone, a powerful nation, that can say, you leave these guys alone. I am their benevolent patron. And the United States, I think, can play that role effectively. Well, I, I, I mean, in, in a West African sub-region, I mean, I, and by other comment of Usman, I don't see any reason why West Africans, Africans in general, cannot do some rethinking. Uh, I mean, it's the whole question of, of of a new approach to development. Look, we recognize that our individual countries are bedeviled by all kinds of challenges. We certainly want to have your abundance alone. What common areas can we identify and what mechanism can we use to promote these common development objectives? I don't think you read, I don't think you need a patron. I mean I don't think you basically need a patron. I think the sixteen countries or fifteen in ECOWAS uh, basically need some some rethinking. I mean there's some there's some institutional framework available. I mean, ECOWAS is beyond, as you know now, what the original 1975 intent was. It's not just an economic community anymore. It's much broader than that, at least in its outlook. So you have some institutional framework. I think that basically that needs to be informed by some new rethinking in terms of uh, sub-regional uh, 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 orientation towards, uh, towards development. And as Usman said correctly, I think this is where visionary, effective, and efficient leadership when it comes in, basically. I, I, won't, I won't suggest that you need an extended patron. I have, I have a reference <coughs> to the though. The EEC was patronized by the United States. There's no doubt about that. Those of us who have studied regional integrations know that the development of the EEC was supported directly, by, if not dictated, but supported effectively by the United States. 
that helped to hold those nations together. That helped to that helped them to negotiate and overcome constraints that would have been very or extremely difficult within their own networks. So there, there has been a model. There has been a model, and it has worked. And what would be the interest and payoff for the patron? I mean, patrons don't do anything for nothing. So what, what would the patron get? That, that's where I appended benevolent. Oh, free course. Except with regard to the coal and steel um, basis on which the EEC was formed, was not benevolent. Uh, United States did put up through the Marshall Plan over $17 billion. And this was within a framework in which uh, these European countries were politically, militarily very weak coming out of the Second World War. And so there was a structural basis on which the U.S. could reconstruct uh, using the existing institutional structures within those areas. Uh, I think if we are really, really um, serious about making sure that our resources are pooled and can be used to effectively impact policies globally, we can do it. Uh, we can do it. General Russell, please. George, I'm, I was interested in your uh, comment about China. And I applaud you for asking the question, so I didn't have to do it. Yes, General. I mean, I, I get the impression that you're comfortable with Chinese foreign policy because you understand it and it's uniform. Oh, no, I'm not, com I'm not comfortable with it. I'm just, I, no, I, all I'm saying, General, is that the, the Chinese are in Africa to promote their economic security and other kinds of interests. Oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with it by, by any means. <laughs> all I'm saying is that African countries, whether it's China, whether it's the United States, whether it's the European Union, African countries themselves have to decide first of all what is it that they want, and they then basically got to use that as the basis for negotiating with these external powers. What is China? So doing? you wouldn't advocate the United States adopt a Chinese foreign policy where we're only the United States is only interested in self. Oh no, 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 not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no. No. Uh, okay. Yes, Julius. Well, um, Stricken um, in Nigeria, we're talking about uh, uh, more than half the population living on less than one dollar a day, given the computations. Um, and you could you could take that statistic and run uh, across the West African region with it, uh, and in some cases even worse. This 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 one element uh, of the reality. The other element of, of the discourse that we're having here is. Is, uh, is about institution building. Uh, it's, it's about how U.S. foreign policy can become effective in terms of changing the conditions of the ground to benefit both the Africans and the United States. But still, we're talking about societies that are very, very poor. So the question, I think, which we have to confront is 50 years after independence, uh, we still have these really sorry conditions and as now, you know, the Dambisa Moyos and others have been writing books on foreign aid, etc., etc. Uh, we, we seem to be not marking time, but actually going backwards in, in, in many respects. So, uh, are we at the moment, even in this conference, uh, talking about issues that are of less relevance uh, to the people on the ground 
and that the rethinking that maybe George and even Zakaria uh, are talking about, uh, the rethinking needs to be much more fundamental than what we, the, we have on the table. And if indeed that's the case, what would be these issues? Okay. Yeah. Well, let me give it out smile or judge. Why shall I let you respond? Issue and, 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 and by no stretch of imagination and, and an easy assignment. Uh, but when I suggested the sort of a, a reconstitution of the state beyond just political liberalization, uh, what I was trying to suggest was that some of these critical issues that you refer to Judith need to be put on the table. How do we address question of mass poverty? How do we address question of education? How do we address question of health care? And all of these sorts of issues. Is that a Political uh, freedoms are not important. They are clearly important. All I was suggesting is that those freedoms by themselves are not enough. You got to connect them to something else because otherwise, if you have, as you mentioned, impoverished, malnourished, uneducated, unhealthy citizens, they're not going to be able to exercise those political freedoms effectively anyway. So I think I think the, the critical challenge that you clearly mentioned is how we can address these human welfare issues, which I think are a critical question, in the midst of poverty and all of those issues that you're talking about. And I think that's the critical question. And I think that's what a conversation really needs to be about within individual African countries, sub-regionally and regionally, in terms of mapping all ways in which these human welfare issues can be addressed within these states, within sub-regional institutions, uh, and within the broader regional frameworks as well, because uh, in my in my two cents, well, if we don't address those critical human welfare issues that you've raised, uh, I think they just want to see the cyclical effect of instability, basically. And 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 people who are poor and impoverished, as our some of our colleagues have already established in their papers, basically become. Uh, readily made target for recruitment in all kinds of what I would call a terrorist organization or criminal gangs because they have no vested interests uh, in, in these things. But that's, I think that's the, that's the difficult challenge of how we go about that. And, and, and it has to be beyond the kinds of conversations that we have on the continent and that's really taking place in Liberia right now, for example, which is basically about power sharing. I mean, the, the conversations are already, always about among political elites how we divide the cake. It has to go beyond that to how do we use state power and state resources to improve the material conditions of a, of, of a larger number of our citizens. I think that's a critical question. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, How do you get out of this vicious circle? 
those who have the monopoly of power, the monopoly of violence, they have the means, they have the institutional means, the institutional capacity, the impossible role. Actually, what you're saying is that this was my roundabout way of asking a basic question, then what should be the purpose of US foreign policy in this particular case in what should it be? We are heading dangerously out of time for this segment, so I'd like to wrap it up by simply saying, especially to, for those who came in late, the discussion here is about the environment. The environment in West Africa that makes security possible or impossible. And if we take Osman's uh, argument during his presentation, that for you to have a vision, it presupposes that you are unsatisfied with the existing status quo. And the status quo in West Africa is one in which there is hopeless uh, lack of transparency, high level of corruption, uh, disempowerment of various groups, especially the young people, women, ethnic minorities, across board, the existence of ungoverned spaces, all of which create for vulnerable socioeconomic conditions for private investment, for <coughs> democracy, and good governance. These levels of insecurity issues make room for potential uh, uh, existence of terrorists in our midst, whether they are terrorists locally, regionally, or perhaps opportunities to connect with external entities. The environment is important for us to rethink to think about them in order to come up with a platform that could create the conditions for us to live happily ever after, whether we have food or not. I, I will urge you that we bring this session to a close and go and get some coffee, some tea, and come back for the last panel. Thank you.